Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Well, it's that time of year where you are probably thinking about those spine-tingling movies a little bit. We've got a bit of an idea for you today. Away from the horror route, a little bit more of the thriller direction. We'll get into that coming up here. Boy, what an ambience that we have today for the show. Welcome to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. I'm Joel Hoover, and meanwhile, going on in the background... I am Dave Brooks. You sound like Paul Bearer, the wrestling manager. Oh, the hoof is going to grab you. You sound like you've practiced this way too much in the past. I'm a Halloween-y. What what do you want? Besides, I got a little kid at home, so it's fun when you... Good morning, little... Good morning, Dad. I was actually just about to say, I'm sure you practice this on your son all the time. And people already are turning off the podcast. Why did I listen to this episode? Anyway, uh, pardon us for the start here, but we are Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. A great place to go catch a movie. $5 movie nights are now $5.50 movie nights, right, Dave? A slight well, adjustment there? Inflation always goes up, but uh, those are ticket prices. But remember... It's still an outstanding deal. Yeah, it really, really is. And if you want to support your theater, it's not the tickets, it's the snacks. That's right. Yeah, so get those concessions. You can support the local theater here in Bemidji, and it's a great place to go to catch a flick at any time of year. But it's the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. In theaters these days, there is a little bit of a spooky tone. Horror movies are at the top of the box office, at least for this past weekend. Smile has been doing decent business here. It's kind of caught on a little bit in in some avenues and lanes, and people have responded pretty well to it. But, of course, this past weekend was the arrival of Halloween Ends, which did okay at the box office, but kind of underperformed expectation. Part of that being because it was released simultaneously on Peacock. But you have been to see it, Dave. I've seen it. Uh, The first point that you brought up, Peacock and theaters, if you're going to go, if you've got Peacock and I can see it for free, I'll just watch it on Peacock. Is that how you watched it? No. But uh, this is also one of those, I want to support it. I want to support the theaters and and go do it. So I I do have Peacock, but I went to see it in the theater because I want to see it in the theater. Um, I'm a fan of that choice. But a lot of people, Peacock has announced that this was the highest watched thing that they have at all. Show, movie, you name it. Well, that's a lot of people, presumably millions of people, that didn't go see it in the theater because they've got it on Peacock. And pretty much anyone that didn't have Peacock either got Peacock or went to go see it at the theater. And it got about, what, 41, I think, that first opening weekend, which is okay, but not great. But then Peacock announces, oh, a whole bunch of people watched it streaming. Well, those are people that didn't go to the theater. And that brings you back to maybe the Black Widow dispute where a lot of people that didn't see it, box office numbers dropped. And then you've got incentive bonuses, perhaps, that don't kick in because the box office didn't happen. But either way, 
Universal gets their money because most of the money that goes to tickets goes back to the studio. And, of course, P- uh, Comcast, which owns Universal and Peacock, they're getting money either way. So Comcast has got to be thrilled, but the theaters, they're kind of getting left out. Yeah, these next few months, as we continue to progress along, further away from what the pandemic was are, are going to be interesting to watch because it, it's going to be a question of, well, what is the movie landscape truly now like as as we continue to try to keep moving forward? What is the movie landscape going to be looking like now? Are we going to continue to stay with the way that things were in the later stages of when the COVID pandemic was at its height? Or are we going to see some kind of course correction a little bit more toward going back to the box office? And we've speculated on that quite a bit on this show. I know you and I have championed the movie-going experience and how good it is and how special it is and meaningful. But what is the the market actually going to say? What is the movie industry actually going to say about it? Honestly, I think that's a very intelligent thought, but I also think it's too deep. I think it's as simple as this. If you want people to go to your streaming service, give them content and not just the brand new stuff that came out. You cannot hinge the the life or death of the streaming service on a movie. Take Top Gun Maverick. Paramount very well could have put it on Paramount Plus immediately. Tom Cruise stood up and said, no, this is not going out. This movie, when it opened early June, it is still in theaters to this day, and it's almost Halloween. People are going to see it and see it again and see it again. Paramount is still making bank, but they knew, let's build Paramount Plus into its own thing. And when Top Gun is ready, we'll get it into Paramount Plus, and it will be there pretty soon. I mean, it's been out in theaters for four-plus months, so now it's going to come. But they're not hinging the success on Paramount Plus on this one movie. They've got a lot of good things, but at the same time, like Peacock, they're doing all kinds of weird things. Paramount owns Star Trek. All of a sudden, pretty much everything of Star Trek just left Paramount Plus to go to other places. Why? I think it should go to other places, but it should always stay at Paramount. Make it like a video store. It's not like, well, we're only going to have the Fast and the Furious movies at Video Update, exclusively at Video Update. What if my town doesn't have a video update? I don't get to watch. No, it can't be like that. And so to the Peacock people, we're going to have this brand new movie. We're going to put it on Peacock the same moment it goes into theaters. Why are you doing that? Stop that. To your point about it becoming like a video store, if you are saying then we're going to simultaneously release in both theaters and on a streaming platform, what are we as consumers supposed to think? Are we supposed to go, this is the modern-day version of a straight-to-video release or a hybrid release like that, and are we supposed to not take this product too seriously? Because there's room to think that. You know, there's I, I get this, and we won't go too far down the rabbit hole with this because that's not what the topic of today's show is going to be about. But, you know, if you're Netflix, for example, Netflix has their own studio that has existed for about 20 minutes. So they've got some content of their own. But it's very limited. Anything else, they need to bring it in. The problem is that they're bringing in as much as they can, but it's a lot of the cheap stuff you've never heard of with actors you've never heard of. Like, what is this? Some people watch it, and a lot of times you find out quickly you know why you never heard of it because it's eh. But if you're Paramount, if you're Warner Brothers, if you are some major studio with a huge backlog of decades worth of great movies and some other movies that are heh, 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 that's your content right there. If that is your video store, nothing should ever, ever, ever leave 
that you own. Now, let's say uh, uh, let's say Peacock, which is owned by Comcast, which is Universal. They can have every Universal movie ever made. They've got Back to the Future, but let's just say they would like to bring in Star Trek just to shake it up. By all means, lease the rights for Star Trek streaming for a season, for three months or whatever. Bring it in, let it go. Let those come and go, ebb and flow. But if it is your content, there's no reason you should artificially drive up the excitement factor of a movie that's 30 years old just by letting it come and letting it go. If it's a universal movie, it should always, 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 always be available on Peacock. End of story. Like every Hitchcock movie, pretty much, should all be on Peacock. You would think... Anyway, you would but think. no, right. it's somebody that knows better, and then of course that's just two years before they're ousted for in for inept management. That finally, yeah. By the way, I don't know if we talked about it on here before or not, but apparently Netflix subscriber numbers are way down, really dropping off, and yes. I don't know if that's because of the splintering that's been going on with the number of different streaming platforms and people needing to make choices, or if that's the case for streaming on the whole, but. We don't have time to get into it today, but it is something to monitor moving forward, not just for Netflix, but for all streaming platforms of have we reached a kind of bubble with streaming? Is that a product of what we are seeing with inflation being what it, where it's at and people needing to make decisions about what they stay subscribed to and what they're staying connected to? Is it a little bit of all of the above and beyond? I think partially, but I think there's too many choices and... You know, if you're going to sit there and look and shift through your movie selections on whatever streaming platform, and it's there's we talked about the research, you get like 10, 15 minutes, and if you can't find something you want to watch, you're not going to watch. And this, this, and then you go to the next streaming service, and then the next streaming service. Oh, I want to watch this kind of movie, but it's not streaming, or it's only streaming on this one, and I don't have that one. Too many choices sounds like a good thing, and I'm a fan of that. But if it's done poorly. I think it's that. I think it's inflation. I think it's a lot of reasons. And Netflix only owns their own movies, which is a pretty small chunk compared to pretty much any other streaming service. So anyway. So today for the episode, we knew that we had talked about horror-related movies in the past. That has been a topic of ours. So we decided to try to find some way to go an alternative direction when it came to spine-tingling, chilling kind of movies that that would be suitable at this time of year. Well, that started to get even more broken down then and even more specific, and we decided to go the route of talking about the master of suspense Say it in his voice. Say it in his voice. Well, I'll do it the best I can. We are talking about Alfred Hitchcock today. An Alfred Hitchcock episode. This will be fun. The master of suspense. That's right, which he earned for decades worth of work. A career that's really spanned four to five decades, I think, by the end of it, from his start in silent films in Great Britain in the 1920s all the way through the end of his career working in Hollywood in the mid to late 1970s. So on the whole, about five decades worth of work that had been done by Hitchcock, building one of the most incredible resumes of movies that that you will ever see from a director. We have brought him up in the past. We have talked about him as as part of other episodes and, and things that we've done. And we've talked about directors on the whole, too. We've talked about Steven Spielberg. We've talked about Quentin Tarantino. But we've not gone back, further back. And Hitchcock, along with Orson Welles, 
you could probably put some others in there. Um, Howard Hawks probably would be another one who you could talk about too. John Houston. You know, you can talk about a variety of different directors among the the best of their craft in the golden age of Hollywood and around that time. But when you talk about directors in that category, Alfred Hitchcock has to be right in there. Yeah, generally a lot of what we talk about on the podcast, whether it's directors or movies or actors, is generally from what's considered new Hollywood from the mid-late 70s on to the present day. But we haven't dipped way too far back, at least not too often, Which into is too bad. the golden age. Which is too bad. Yeah, it's but a lot of people don't get it. A lot of people, there was the idea behind, like, say, Psycho, which is another Hitchcock movie that they remade in the late, 80, late 90s, mistake, by the way, then, well, people don't want to watch the original because it's black and white. And for that reason alone, we should remake it. No. And it turned out no, that was Gus not Van a good, Sant. That was no. a bad choice. Didn't do well. Got bad reviews. There was nothing original about it. Sometimes you capture it the best that it is captured. And I don't care if it's black and white or what. Uh, if it's shot like a stage production and not dynamic cinematography, doesn't matter. Hitchcock, Oscar winner was the master of what his craft was. One of his quotes that he had said that I have held on to in reference to a gun going off, it's not the bang that is the fair, That's the scary thing. It's the anticipation of the bang. You know something's coming. You know when. And he just knew how to shift it and angle it and position it. Oh, here we go. Okay, it's not just, oh, oh. And then it would come out of nowhere, and it just scared the pants off you when it did. And it wasn't just the shooting of the gun that was like that. He did that with everything plot-wise. He did that so frequently within his movies, especially the very suspenseful ones or the ones that that touched the horror genre even. One like Psycho that was firmly embedded in the horror genre or one like The Birds that was pretty darn close. Even if you would maybe dub it a thriller, it was pretty close to being a horror. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a, leg in a little both bit. pools, I think. Yeah. So... There's so much to explore with Hitchcock, but uh, it, it's important to think about the the arc of his his filmmaking career being one that reflected the changes that that were going on in movies during the course of the 1920s, all the way through the late stages of the golden age of Hollywood. So Hitchcock started, and, and he was in silent films in Britain, but even in those those early films that he made, you could start to see this formula that was developing of things that he would try to do in order to elicit a certain response from the audience and to get the audience to truly step into the experience of the characters on the screen. He did that in, in even some of his his silent films, but then he, I believe, also put together the first British talkie, which I think came in, the, in 1929. He had the first British talkie, and then he progressed on from there, did a little bit more larger scale but still somewhat small budget British films that he made the the 39 steps I think the most notable of those that he made there was another one that that got him some notoriety then in the late 1930s and then he was convinced to go to Hollywood and then started his mark yeah that's when he started to make his mark and started to really get going with some of the films that he made there films like foreign correspondent um, Saboteur, which he would then kind of remake in in a different vein uh, further down the line with what he did with North by Northwest, going a slightly different direction, but still same kind of formula. Um, and then a movie like Suspicion, which had Cary Grant in it. And he lay a groundwork that then ended up 
getting built upon with future movies. And it was interesting because some of his concepts that he made in movies in the 30s and early 40s were films that he either straight up revisited with, I think The Man Who Knew Too Much was a straight up remake of one of his own movies that he had done previously, or he would repackage it and bring it to you in a new way that he just did not have the capabilities for earlier on in his career. So before we really dive into the the masterpiece that is Hitchcock's career, I want to say something directly to some of our listeners who are maybe on the younger side that, I don't like older movies, I don't like black and white movies. Let me put it to you this way. When I, I was a kid that grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and a lot of Hitchcock movies, but before there was such a thing as you know video movies and things being shown on simulcast and, and streaming and you could just access anything and everything, there were large swaths of well-known productions that just kind of fell off the radar. They just weren't available. And Hitchcock movies, they just weren't shown anymore, other than maybe Psycho. But a lot of them, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Rope, they just kind of vanished. They just weren't being shown. And then in the late 80s, for a long story, you can look it up and Google the story. Basically, they got put back front and center. And my parents were thrilled to watch this. And on the movie channel, which is one of those subscription-based movie things, they were going to show a whole month of Hitchcock. And there was going to be a special movie returning to the screen for the first time in ages. And my parents, for the ones that were appropriate for kids, and I was, I don't know, maybe 10 or something at the time, something like that, um, they made they had movie night. And I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch this movie rear window. Who cares about some old guy in a wheelchair looking out his back window? I don't care. I was so uninterested. But I, this was family night. They're choosing the movie. <sighs> Fine. For a kid who grew up on Star Wars and Jaws and Back to the Future and all this, this was a very non-exciting movie night for me. Loved that movie. Developed an appreciation for Hitchcock because of that and some of the other movies we watched. So what I'm, my point is, do yourself a favor and don't just be a picky eater when it comes to these movies. There are there are movies that are worth skipping. There are some that are worth a watch. And then there are some you need to give yourself the time to watch this with an open mind and open eyes. Hitchcock is one of those guys. Do yourself a favor. Pick a movie that is highly regarded from Hitchcock, whether you're eh, and try it. Rear Window, I would highly suggest. Psycho, of course, the original. Yes. And just try something from a different point of view. Exactly, because there's a lot that you can learn from from those movies as far as the filmmaking and the style in which they were shot. But and they're just good. They're they're super compelling. Yeah, and whether you go back to some of his 1930s ones, I mentioned the the 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes was another one too. Before he he made the pivot to Hollywood, and where then he started he started going and. and being able to bring his ideas onto a larger canvas and a larger scale. I mentioned a couple of movies that you started to see that in. Shadow of a Doubt, another one. If you wanted a, a very suspenseful movie, you got it there with that, was a good one. that uncle who might be just <laughs> a little bit go- far gone when it came to uh, how sinister he is. Yeah, so... Boy, talk about a talk about a creepy movie in some ways. That's that's the way that it is. But um, but then you you start to see this pivot into these these larger movies on a bigger scale with bigger actors and a bigger budget, and suddenly you start to see these things getting getting themselves an even grander stage. It feels like whether you know he had a, a clever idea with rope. We'll certainly be talking about rope here today a little bit more specifically. But then you have something like Strangers on a Train. I mean, if you're if you are looking for a spine tingler here for the month of October, 
strangers on the train is definitely a way to go with uh, with a sinister kind of tone to that movie or something like Dial M with Murder. Rear Window, which you mentioned, which is just a an amazingly shot movie. To Catch a Thief, which is just a very fun movie. The Trouble with Harry, which is kind of a comedic movie in some ways. And, and, and suddenly you're going all over the map here. Then you get back into the into the espionage type with the man who knew too much, or his classic his classic direction of of having somebody wrongfully accused for something with the wrong man or North by Northwest. Then you have Vertigo, which is regarded as one of the greatest movies of all time for so many different reasons with with the way that movie was shot and the way that there are different tropes and themes to that movie. Then there's Psycho. When he got into one of the earliest slasher horror movies, like the very front edge of it, and just stunned audiences with some of the decisions made in that movie. Then The Birds, which created horror in the mundane. And then you go a, a different direction than with Marnie, which had a completely different kind of story that he did with that one. Um, Torn Curtain, where he got into a little bit more of international intrigue there too. And then some really interesting late career movies with Topaz, Frenzy, and Family Plot, where he went some very different directions with those movies at the very back end of his career. It's, it's such a varied landscape. And yet, Dave, there are some themes, there are some things that Hitchcock did that are similar across many of those movies, which I sort of already have just described. Yeah, it was a nice kind of a glossing over of a lot of, pretty much most of the big hits that he's done. Let's take a moment and start to dive into some of those individual pools a little bit. And I think maybe an earlier one of his roles that he did, or not roles, but we, you mentioned it earlier, let's jump into Rope. Why not? What a good one it was. As far as the dynamic of it being shot, it was shot very much almost as if it was put on a high school play stage and just shot almost the camera stays put and people just move around and the camera pans and that's about it. Because, surprise, surprise, it's based on a 1929 play. That's true. And it was shot like it was a play. But then again, this is a movie made in the 50s and one of the reasons Citizen Kane gets so much love is because as old as that movie is, it was shot in such a way, dynamically, that is much more akin to the way we shoot movies today. And movies that time just weren't shot that way. So when you see Citizen Kane and you see Rope, that is one of the ingredients that makes Citizen Kane on the top of so many, wow, that's an amazing movie list, because it was shot so beautifully. But the story, the subject, the acting, Jimmy Stewart is in Rope. What a cool yet creepy story. Yes, and in total, there were four long shots that were created and put together and spliced together. There were certain ways that they were able to splice them together, so you think it's all one continuous jump cut, but it's actually not in the end. And it all comes in the middle of a murder mystery. Well, and even more so than that, long story short, these two people that think they're better than others... They basically kill one of their buddies, and they stuff him in a trunk, and then they set up a dinner party, and the center part of this dinner party is this trunk with you know play settings and food and stuff set up on it. So this guest of honor who's not at his own event, kind of is, and these people that are smarter than you and I keep making these little comments that are suggestive, well, if only you knew what we knew, but <laughs> will somebody figure it out? Jimmy Stewart, their professor, professor, wasn't he? He was like a teacher or something? Yes. Yeah. And they they wanted these two wanted to prove themselves and prove how superior they were by pulling this off. 
And the question is, will they, or is somebody else in the room going to be smarter than these guys, smarter, that they think they're smarter than everybody else? Will Jimmy Stewart figure it out? Will somebody else figure it out? Is anybody going to figure it out? So there's a dark, comedic sense to it, because the jokes are, you know, kind of funny. Well, you could say there's a little of Ooter in all of us. You know, that kind of gets played off in some of the Simpsons, but it works well into this movie, and will people figure it out? It's very basic in its premise, but it is so diabolical, and it is so sharp, and it is so well-crafted, and it's that anticipation that the master of suspense is well-known to do. It is not a frightening movie at all, and by today's standards, it's pretty tame as far as a murder would go, something along those lines, and that happens off stage. You don't see it happen, but it's 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 an ex- it's a wonderful example of how you could take something so basic and really make the most out of it and squeeze as much out of it as you can. Rope came out in 57, something like that? 1948. 40, oh, okay. It was actually when. Hitchcock's first Technicolor film. That's true. As yeah. well. He had been mostly in black and white before that. And quite effectively he had been in black and white too. And still would be in, in some future movies that he would put together as well. For instance, Strangers on a Train. Uh, speaking, of, speaking of Rope... A very a common thread between those two movies, Farley Granger, who starred in both of them. So, with, so how did Hitchcock create such good suspense, Dave? I think that's Ooh. one of the big questions that needs to that needs to come up here and be answered, especially because you know we're in the month of October. We're giving some ideas for people as far as movies that maybe aren't necessarily of the horror genre, but are ones that that create that spine tingling feeling. How did Hitchcock create such good suspense? You know, I, I think a good way to, I don't want to give away the spoiler yet. I don't think we're ready to dive into Psycho, but one of the better examples I can think of would probably come from Psycho. But I'll try to steer clear of that just for now. We'll save the big reveal to the end. Let's let's go into Vertigo. Vertigo is a movie that is funny in that it's probably one of my favorite Hitchcock movies, but it is also in some ways one of the more long, slow burn movies. And so some people might think of it as boring. It was not necessarily a successful movie when it first came True. out. It got some very mixed reviews at the True. time. But now it is contemporarily looked at as maybe one of his best works, and it is a fabulous movie. Um, you know, it's t- considered one of the greatest movies ever made, too. I, I agree with that. You know, it's it's one of those that it's a fine wine. You might not like it immediately, and then all of a sudden it starts to burn inside of you, just like it burns on the screen slowly, and all of a sudden you find yourself, I love it. I had it on one year in college, and my roommate's like, what is this? you got to see this. It's wonderful. They didn't dig it. But in years later, like, I would just watch Vertigo the other night. It was awesome. You hated it however many years ago that was that we showed that. I'll tell you what. A better answer to your question, let me shift gears. We'll go to Rear Window. I think it's a better way to do it. Long story short, Rear Window. Jimmy Stewart again. He's a photographer with a broken leg, and this is back in the day when when you had a broken leg, you weren't going anywhere. Walking boot, nothing. You were in a wheelchair in your house. And a one-setting film as a result then. One of the biggest sound stages housed one of the biggest sets ever done. This entire courtyard and all these various different apartment buildings that share it were all built in full-size scale in a huge set with so much lights to make it bright and look like daylight that it got so hot and humid that it actually rained inside is one of the stories that it actually happened in there. But anyway, he thinks he has witnessed his neighbor across the courtyard maybe murder his wife and is up to all kinds of nefarious things. So the question is, did he? Didn't he? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? 
the also the impl- the implications of staring at all your neighbors when that's kind of all you have to do it's not like you had internet back in the days and this is from the 50s so you're you're stuck you're looking out your window it's a very voyeuristic movie you've got various call it probings by this guy to figure out a little bit more did this happen did this not happen going up to the ultimate culmination sending his fiance over to see if there might be something buried in the garden. And then she takes it a step further. And she's not just doing the garden. She's breaking into the guy's apartment. Oh, my gosh, here comes the guy. It's one thing stacked on top of another. Each one little things. It's almost like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Here's another straw and another straw and another Which one is going to break the back? Oh, my gosh, not this. Oh, it's still going up. There's that. And then there's even more straw piled on it. Just It starts building up your blood pressure to the point where you are I don't know if I can take this anymore. There's another piece of straw. And you're waiting for that anticipation of the bang. It's not the bang. It's the anticipation of the bang that really gets you. And boy, did he master that. I think that is part of what makes Hitchcock so good when it comes to suspense and that thriller element, too. Even... Rear Window is not necessarily a thriller movie, but it I becomes, would certainly call it a thriller movie. It becomes one at the end, like it's it's a slow burn and a slow build. It's it's kind of sus- suspenseful, almost more like a drama for most of it. But then it becomes a thriller in a big way in the final third of the movie. And why? Because of something that you described that makes Rear Window such a great movie in the Hitchcock filmography, and one of his best to enjoy, is because it it leans into one of the things that made Alfred Hitchcock such a good director, and it's that voyeurism element to it, where you are embedded into the character, and you kind of, you sort of become in the character's eyes, and you're you're kind of panning along, looking at what's going on from, from their lens and their perspective. That's a very powerful tool. That Hitchcock wielded very successfully with a lot of the movies that he made to a point where you are unnerved as Cary Grant is drunkenly driving down the road in North by Northwest, swerving in and out away from cars. You are very unnerved as you are looking down the flight of stairs as Jimmy Stewart's character Scotty in, in Vertigo. You are unnerved being in those positions, so you are then unnerved when... Furthermore. Furthermore, yes, when suddenly the the height of fear and concern grows in, in some of these movies in the manner that it does. And certainly that's the case when you get into the late stages of Rear Window where all of a sudden things are very scary. And when you are peering through the binoculars of... Jim, uh, James Stewart's character there in the movie, and you suddenly see Grace Kelly in serious trouble, and you see, you, you see the neighbor about it. exactly. You see the neighbor outside the door, and you see her trying to figure out what to do, and you hear him going, "Lisa, Lisa, get out of there!" and and yet she's not getting out of there. She's trying to find a way to be able to hide, and then to talk her way out of the whole situation. And yeah, it it's a really effective movie because it. It brings one of Hitchcock's great tropes in terms of his filming and makes a whole movie out of it. Well, and one of the other good things about what makes Rear Window work is, so, spoiler alert, we are going to talk spoilers here, by the way, so if we haven't mentioned it earlier, just be Or if you haven't figured it out. With their spoiler three, two, one. 
He did kill his wife, but it's not shown on screen. In fact, it's not shown at all, and you really don't know whether there was or there wasn't any more than than Stewart's character. So if the movie had started with, let's say, a strangulation in the very beginning, well, you know that it happened. It's done. You've already seen close to the ceiling. Now the characters just need to catch up. You are in the position of the characters. Well, I don't know. Maybe there was. Maybe there wasn't. Maybe I'm just an idiot, And but you slowly, slowly, slowly start building up the tension, the facts, the reality that... I think he did. And you find out later, he did. But only at the very end do you find out that he did. That's another part of what makes Hitchcock so good across many movies. You can you can see this manifest in many different movies where it's not like a lot of modern-day filmmaking, Dave, where we get slapped over the face by the visual. We get slapped over the face with, uh, let's say... It, let's say Rear Window was made in a modern sense. There would probably be some kind of flashback at the very end where it is when, let's say that that James Stewart, when faced up with, with that character, his neighbor, who comes in a very, very foreboding way in the dark into his apartment Raymond at the very Burr end. Himself. Oh, man. It just, just imposing and scary, and then he's menacingly walking toward him. No music or anything, and then those flash bulbs start going off as he's taking the pictures. If that if that was made in the modern day, we would probably, at the point of revelation, get some kind of flashback interposed in there where you see that the guy did kill his wife, and we get the visual of it. Part of what made Hitchcock effective was he didn't he didn't sell out to that. He didn't subscribe to that notion. You are left with unanswered questions or not seeing those kinds of things. You are left with the revelation where he's smart enough to know the audience is smart enough to figure this out, which is so refreshing when you see things like that. It's like you don't need a flashback like that. If they made it today, you'd find out that the Raymond Burr neighbor character had killed many other people that stumbled too close and knew too much. That whole apartment would be full of bodies by the end, and you'd see every knife stab and everything else. Plus, there'd be a dramatic battle at the end. I mean, way over the top. They just, they don't, they don't, it's not craftsmanship anymore. You know, Hitchcock knew how to make a fine crafted Amish wood table and everybody else that's going to try to redo it better is all doing the Ikea thing. No offense to Ikea, but it's just, it's not the same. It just isn't. This is craftsmanship. This is really making it work in a way where you could take a simple basic premise and just find out how to peel that thing like the best onion bloom appetizer you've ever eaten. He was a guy too who, whether it was black and white or it was it was color, was very effective in using light and dark. Oh yeah, to be to be very effective. Um, you, you think about something like Strangers on a Train, and the way that so many of those scenes take place at night. One of the few I've not seen, actually. I have to admit, you. I'm a familiar with it. I know what it is, but I haven't seen it yet. That's if you want one that is that is. Definitely going to give you a, a bit of a creepy, spine-tingling feeling. Strangers on a Train definitely fits that and features, in particular, an excellent performance from Robert Walker. Very menacing with this idea, this proposal that he has for Farley Granger's character. You do this for me, I'll do this for you and kind of thing. But Isn't I, it funny when you realize that that's kind of the premise of Horrible Bosses? Yet done in a comedic way. It's the same movie, but done as a comedy. Yeah, this that's bizarre. This most definitely not comedic, <laughs> and this agreement that was never totally agreed upon, but that is taken as such by Robert Walker's character, who's kind of off his his rocker with what he decides to do. So, 
you get but you get a lot of light and dark that are used there very effectively or you use night to build suspense in in such an effective way there same with dial m for murder you know you you have you have this at night where grace kelly's character is is attacked in the way that she is with she has a husband who basically wants to do away with her well what happens when that goes wrong how do you how do you address this how do you deal with an assassin who's now suddenly actually dead keeled over in the midst of trying to to pull this off like what do you do about this how do, how do you handle this as good as that one was it actually has a very good well done remake uh the perfect murder michael douglas gwyneth paltrow vigo mortensen uh late 90s very very well done and i'm i'm not a big fan of redoing things that were fairly well done but dial or uh yeah, dial m for murder it was a, you know, it was known, but it didn't have that kind of notoriety that, say, Psycho or you know, North by Northwest had. So the remake, eh, but it turned out really, really well. It was done as well, arguably better. Maybe you can make that argument, but darn well. But again, light and dark, he used very effectively, and I think that stemmed, especially a lot of those movies that I just mentioned are. There's some black and white in there, and certainly Psycho. I mean, using black and white for Psycho, I think was a very effective manner of being able to create some of that fear in there too, especially with not only the Bates motel, but also the Bates home oh, yeah. itself and the way that, that he uses that. But you can see an evolution as well. Before in- you move on to the next thing, speaking of black and white, so many people that had seen that back in the day. And just for point in fact, the entire movie, every shot, black and white, not one speck of color. But how many people came out of watching that, remembering the famous shower scene, I actually saw red blood. No, you didn't. There was not red. <laughs> yeah. You think you did, but no. In fact, they did, what they used for the blood was actually chocolate syrup. Chocolate, That's right. Which is brown because it showed up better in black and white in, you know, mixed in with the water. There was no red, but people were so pulled in, just like you'd said, the notion of light and dark, they swear that the blood was red. It wasn't. Right. It was delicious chocolate syrup. I've heard that same theory that's come up before. Not theory. Which is, which is it was for real. People were like, no, I, pre- I swear it was red blood. No, it wasn't. Just, it just manifested in their minds. Yeah, the it's with- amazing the things that you don't see, the mind doesn't see, but what it comes up with on its own. Yeah. And that's an example of it. And Hitchcock knew how to manifest that. I'll say, too, for his movies in the 50s and 60s in particular, This was the case in some of the past ones, but for his movies in the 50s and 60s especially, Hitchcock effectively used the score of the movie to create suspense too. And his collaboration with Bernard Herrmann, while it was combustible, was memorable with how good it was. Boy, I tell you, one of the best sequences I've ever heard from an orchestral score is the opening of Vertigo. Wow, and the visuals to go with it. It is all these spirographs, and it's just... Dementia is not the right word, but it is very um, hypnotic. Yeah, offsetting, um, throws you off balance. It's it's one of the best opening sequences I've ever seen, and that came from the late fifties. Well, speaking of an opening sequence that sets a tone, how about Psychos as yeah, well? Yeah, that's an interesting one too. It's um, dun, 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 you know, and one of the dun, things dun, 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 it's completely it's completely string. There's the there's nothing in that orchestra for the Psycho soundtrack that isn't strings. It's been duplicated, but never repeated honestly, faithfully, truly. You know, and of course the high string violins, which we still use to this day, re, 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 when the thing goes, that is 
iconic. That oh. still to this that movie came out in 1960. I play, it still stands. I play that sound around my mom sometimes for fun, <laughs> and she's like, "Stop!" She just can't handle it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we might as well jump into Psycho a little bit. You know, Psycho. This is an example of. Well, I read the book. The book was better. Psycho was a book originally. Done by written by a guy named Robert Block, B L O C H, I think is how you spelled it. It's it's close to the movie, but not quite the same as the movie. And the the, the book tells a lot of things that the movie only kind of implies. But then you get Hitchcock. The book was only released one year prior. Yeah, to he was aware of it, and he bought up as many copies as he could. And in fact, when Psycho came out in theaters, and we'll explain why he did this in a second. Uh, there was a strict policy at every theater that showed it. If you came in to see the movie and the movie had just started, I don't care if the credits were still playing, you didn't get admitted to see the movie because there are things that happen that you need to see the whole movie. If you didn't make it in time, buy a ticket for the next show. Sorry, you're not going to make this one. And they enforced it. So like other movies, you think it's about one thing, and then it completely becomes about something else. So Janet Leigh's character, who's the real-life mom of Jamie Lee Curtis, by the way, it starts out like an embezzlement movie. You know, well, why are they calling this psycho? Well, she steals money from her from her job, and then she's $40,000 that yeah. she takes with her. In 1960, that was probably a lot more money than it is now, but still. She's, yes. She's embezzled money from her company. She's on the run, and she has a change of heart. All right, maybe Yeah, I because she wants back. to she wants to run away and marry this guy, yeah. but she needs all this money in order to be able to, to sort of get to that point. And one night, when she's at the crossroads of what should I do on a rainy night, she's got to pull the car over and she's got to stay somewhere. And she finds this rundown motel off in the middle of nowhere. And she spends the night and she has sort of a heart to heart, kind of creepy conversation with the motel you know, innkeeper. And she decides, yeah, I'm, tomorrow I'm going to go back and I'm going to return this money. Of course, this innkeeper doesn't know anything about this money. And uh, you kind of get this impression that maybe this, you know, innkeeper is going to learn about the money and try to take the money from her. And sure enough, she settles in for a shower and is brutally murdered in the shower by this innkeeper's sadistic mom, who you can hear fighting with the innkeeper back and forth. And then you find out that it has nothing to do with the money at all, and the innkeeper didn't even know anything about this money. And it had nothing. It was something completely different. And the, the money entire, was a total MacGuffin. The whole movie shifts, and not only that. You know, this actress is one of the biggest actresses in Hollywood at the time. She'd be like Jennifer Lawrence today. I mean, pretty well regarded, pretty well known. Just the fact that she's in a movie was the big selling point. She doesn't make it through halfway through the movie. And they kind of echo that in Scream with Drew Barrymore's character. She was highly promoted as being in the movie. Before the movie came out, you're like, all right, it's a Drew Barrymore movie. And she doesn't make it 10 minutes into the movie before she's killed off. And very much an homage to Psycho. So this is completely about something different. You've got this crazy woman that lives up in the house and the innkeeper who's aware of her crimes, but you can't turn in your own mom. So he's doing everything he can do to try to cover things up and try to smooth things over. But bodies are piling up and questions are being asked and people are coming around and he's getting more frantic. But the other thing is you kind of turn this guy as who is an accomplice to this into a sympathetic character, like, well, I sympathize with them. I mean, what would you do if your mom was maybe a little off her rocker and is knocking people off? You know it's wrong. You know you can't do it. But at the same time, you can't just turn in mom. And that's his point until it changes again right at the end with one of the biggest twists in movie history. Would you like to give it away? No, I, I don't need to give it away. All right, we'll leave it at that. But it was good it, enough. I mean, you can if you want to, but... 
Uh, no, I won't. Um, but it's worth checking out. Wow, for once we don't get into a spoiler. We will we show. will skip the spoiler, but it's enough to say that it's not about the book that made this work. It's the movie that made it work. It was just like Jaws made the movie made was much better than the book. Jurassic Park, I think, as a movie was better than the book because you get to see the dinosaurs. This movie spawned off three sequels. There was some TV spinoff in the late 80s. Then there was the more recent Bates Motel show. Um, the, the, even the, st- the set to this day, if you visit Universal Studios in Hollywood, it still stands, the motel and the house, and there's a reason for it. It's, uh, it's well worth checking out. And the sequel, the first one, Psycho 2, also well worth checking out. If you've seen the original and none of the sequels, the Bates Motel show is really, really good, and Psycho 2 is really, really good. The, the slasher element to this movie it was it was something that hit, that was completely different that was new for, for mainstream audiences that was too. new for Hitchcock as well it was a different just a different way that he went about putting that movie together and that's I think what stunned a lot of people was you had seen a certain Hitchcock formula that had come about before and he played into it with the way that he shot it and the way that he did some things and of course the way that he created tension but he did it in a completely new and different way with with Psycho. And that's what I think was part of what made it such an unnerving movie. And again, for all those reasons that you described, Dave, Janet Lee getting killed off midway through the movie. You have almost an entirely new cast of, of people who come into it there. You have Sam, who is, who is her boyfriend, who, who now reemerges, but you see way more of him in the second half of the movie as he's trying to figure out what happened. Then you have her sister who comes into the picture and is played by Vera Miles. You have the private investigator who comes up then as well. You have like a whole new cast of people who who come into the foreground of this movie at the back end of it as they're trying to figure out what happened here. And, oh, by the way, what you thought the movie was going to be about, this embezzlement thing, it actually was just setting up for what the movie is actually completely about. So it's just... Incredible misdirection that and, that you get there as far as what is the point of this? Well, it's misdirection that comes from spellbindingly good directing. And amazingly good characterization as well. In the book, Norman Bates is described as kind of an overweight, schlubby guy. Anthony Perkins is not that. He's very articulate. He's very, you know, dashing. He's, you know, kind of an attractive guy. But he has done as such a nervous, finicky, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it, just just antsy, squirrely. Squirrely would be a good way to put it. I like antsy. That's a good choice. And you know something's going on. He's an iceberg is what he is. There's a lot more under the surface that you don't see, and then there's a lot more beneath even that that you don't see until the very end. And the way he does it is fabulous. And he was well known as sort of a an attractive young leading man potential kind of guy and then he does psycho and it pigeonholed him for the rest of his career if he did anything that was not some kind of a weirdo he it was just off base. So with talking about Hitchcock I think it's important that we talk about some of the some of the tropes or consistencies that you see amongst his movies. First of all there there's the classic mistaken man there, oh, yeah. there are, I believe, 11 out of his 53 movies where there is some kind of mistaken identity of some kind or somebody is on the run because of some kind of mistaken notion or identity about them. North by Northwest maybe the most famous of all yeah. of those where where you have Cary Grant's character who is who is framed for a murder and is part of this 
espionage plot in the end that that he's in and he's basically trying to uncover it while trying to escape being that he's totally innocent but is right. wrongfully thought of being involved in something that he himself is trying to solve if you watch hitchcock's 1942 movie saboteur very similar to that one yeah very very similar with the way that that you have that character the the central man in that movie sort of get framed that way yeah there are a lot of themes to hitchcock's movies many many themes that you can derive and figure out within those movies sometimes those themes are ones that you could you could directly thread back to hitchcock himself and the one that maybe frames this the best is vertigo and it's part of what makes Vertigo such a phenomenal movie, but at the same time a movie that leaves you talking about so much. You An- could sum up what Vertigo is about with one word, which is disturbing in and of itself. What would what would you try what would you describe that theme as with one word? Obsession. Yeah, me too. It's obsession. Because in many ways, if you talk about Hitchcock and you talk about Vertigo. They, they are in some ways mirror images of each other, or Vertigo is kind of this manifestation of something that, that many people say was is part of the Hitchcock story. One of his tropes that he has is the platinum blonde. Yeah. The Hitchcock blonde is, is how it gets described. You see that with the women in his movies, in, in some of his most notable movies, they are a blonde character. You have Grace Kelly, who was in... Dial M for Murder, was in Rear Window, was in To Catch a Thief, which if you want a more adventure-type movie that also has some suspense and thrill to it, go with To Catch a Thief in Monaco. Beautifully shot. We'll get to the the filmography here in a little bit, uh, but just, oh, amazing movie. And then you have Grace Kelly, who's who's just almost hypnotic in the middle of it, and it's just this, this... you could see her becoming Princess Grace of Monaco in that movie, basically. That's kind of like, how it started, Especially yeah. as she wears the diamonds there in that movie. You're like, oh my but then, gosh. But then you but, got to the chase with Tippi Hedren and on screen that's, and behind the scenes. That's jumping ahead even, oh, too. Sorry, I mean, there was sorry. there was Eva Marie Saint, yeah. who, who was in North by Northwest. Kim Novak, who was at the center of Vertigo. And yes, it then centered on Tippi Hedren when you Janet get to the Lee birds, too, one of the bigger stars Marnie. at the time. Yeah, yeah, Janet Lee again, platinum blonde as well. But w- with all of those characters, that it, it, it was kind of, it was kind of Hitchcock's impression of of what the woman ought to be in a movie, yeah. and not only the platinum blonde, but she's icy. She is. She's almost too cool. There's almost. There's almost no personality to her. And you see such similarities across those characters. You can thread them together. And then in Vertigo, you have a story of of obsession. You have a man at the center of it. This 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 detective, this police detective, who's dealing with Vertigo and who is struggling with this case where there's this woman at the center of it who just mesmerizes him. And then it appears as if. She dies at this point then in the movie. And and he thinks that that he's lost her, even though he's working on behalf of this guy who is her husband. But then he kind of falls for the subject. He falls for the subject. And then he comes across this woman who reminds him so much of her. And what he wants to do then is he wants to turn this woman into her rather than taking her for who she is. Well, is she actually her? And is she part of this larger plot that's in play here? Mm. You have that that's going on, but it actually in many ways takes a back seat 
to this guy who's supposed to be the hero at the center of it, James Stewart's character, but who you actually are kind of unnerved by. And when it's James Stewart, who is as all-American as it gets for movies at the time. When he creeps you out, see something's going on. Exactly. And that's where Vertigo is so unnerving. But in many ways, it framed a part of Hitchcock that is really worth telling about his story. And that's his sometimes tempestuous relationship with his actors, who he would work with, and even his sometimes tempestuous relationship with and how he handled the women in his movies and how he went about that. Tippi Hedren, who you were referring to there a little bit earlier, she really reflected that in a lot of ways with some sometimes the the extremes to which Hitchcock pushed her in, especially the birds, but even in some ways Marnie too, with the way that she she was at the center of a pretty it's it's a pretty serious discussion regarding abuse that's in that movie too. But in in some ways, you kind of go, did he push the boundaries too far with how he used an actor at his disposal like her, who he revered as like his greatest find and stuff, and yet who he really pushed to an extreme. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's got to be brought up. This is kind of a sidebar, but it's a lot of connective tissue. Are you aware that there is a companion movie that goes along with Vertigo that is much more modern? I mean, it's not super modern. Basic Instinct. Are you aware of this? I didn't realize that they that that was viewed as a companion movie. So Not much. necessarily viewed as, but intended to be. I mean, there's a lot of connective tissue. It's they're unrelated stories, but there's a lot of connectivity. They're both set in San Francisco. A lot of the same scenery. It's shot in a very similar way. It's also about obsession and the icy blonde. It takes it a little further. Sharon Stone in this case, where she's not as. Submissive is not the right word in the characters that Hitchcock would do, but that is the complete opposite of her Catherine Trammell character, who may or may not be a murderess, and the detective trying to figure out whether she is or is not is obsessed with her in his in his own way. So it's in, in a lot of other ways. The costuming, in fact, some of the stuff she wears in that movie, it absolutely mimics what's being worn in Vertigo. So what Kim Novak wears. So it's, of course, it's got a lot more sex scenes in it than uh, Vertigo did. But if you're not familiar with that, go watch Vertigo, then go watch Basic Instinct and see how many similarities you can pull out. And they are all intentional. So just a little sidebar. Not worth going down the That's rabbit really hole, interesting. but worth bringing up. Yeah, it's there is such a hypnotic component to Vertigo. So much so that when I loaned the movie to a friend one time to watch it, my friend told me that that she thought that it was a dream. With that movie because of how it was shot and how it was put together. But you see a lot of common themes that come up. There, there's a, And some people think that some of them stem from Hitchcock's life in some ways. For instance, some, some of his handling of not just the central woman figures in his movie, but even the mother figures in some of his movies. Very similar yeah. in the overbearing kind of nature of them, whether it's the, the mother of... Rod Taylor's character in The Birds or the mother of Cary Grant's character in North by Northwest. There's there's some similarities. Or just mother. There. Or just mother. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's you know, I think he's got an interesting relationship with women in his personal life. It's been documented. There's an HBO uh, movie that came out in the more recent years where um, uh, Anthony Hopkins plays Hitchcock, and it's about him as a person. Generally, especially where the Tippi Hedren relationship came in. And they were never a couple or anything. He had a wife. But there was something bizarre going on with Tippi Hedren. Never implied to be that 
uh, there was something going on hanky-panky-wise, but it was almost like a controlling kind of a thing. Yes. He viewed her as property. And you can see something kind of like that to some degree or another woven thickly or thinly through most of these shows to some degree. And you can you can see, too, an almost cynical view that Hitchcock yeah. had on things like marriage, on things like people people handling sexual issues too you can almost see like a cynical kind of attitude about it in in a lot of his movies yeah yeah it's it, you know it's, that's a good point to bring up you almost wonder how much commentary of nor of societal norms are worked into some of these movies maybe on a very veiled basis you get you might be onto something or sometimes not so veiled yeah in some of those movies <laughs> some too. of those yes so anyway um there's another common theme that comes up and that's that's the filming and you have a guy who we we talked about but we we've talked about a few film related things but the way that he would use camera shots there's the famous vertigo shot that you have of the stairs where there's the the backing out and the zooming in that's going on you have things like that 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 he would do that were just incredible pieces of camera technique or angles that he would use or sometimes using scale as well and Using and matte paintings that really looked realistic, but also, like your friend said, dreamlike like in Nor- a way. Like North by Northwest. Oh, you, yeah. Vertigo, too, where you get a lot that. of those shots. Yes. The, whether it's the Redwood Sequoia Forest or whether it's the shot from the Bell Tower. and I mean, a lot of that is is really well done matte work that is as realistic as it is almost surrealistic or, or dreamlike. But it helps add that larger scale that, yeah. you, that you were starting to get with movies of that day and that Hitchcock really leaned into effectively with so many of those movies. And talk about impressive from a guy who had gone from black and white to color movies. Don't you feel, Dave, when you watch Rear Window or especially To Catch a Thief or The Trouble with Harry, the color just pops off the screen in his movies and it's he he used technicolor so spectacularly i mean it it is it is amazing the color in those movies mid 50s you have technicolor that is just sweeping movies at the time and i would say hitchcock used it about as well as anybody and not just that but also you talked about his orchestral use and sound and other things this is a guy even pulling out of what you're talking about and taking it in as the as the the medium of film and movie making was changing from no sound available in movies at all to now sound and now you get color he was not one of those guys, well, this is the way we've always done it, and that's how I learned it, and that's how I'm going to do it. This is a guy that learned how to change with the times, bring it in, and really make it, in a way, almost its own character, the coloring, the sound, things that, when he started, did not exist. There was no color. There was no sound. He worked it in, and not just worked it in begrudgingly, but really made it, like you said, pop, whether it was the orchestral strings and the weep, weep, weep. That is almost its own character in a way that, to this point, we still parody it and we still try to duplicate it yeah and the way the color works and people thinking they're seeing color when they're really not seeing color and the way when he actually does use the color i keep remembering that scene in vertigo or then the room and the only way that's really lighting the room is the red neon light that's coming in through the window that's flashing and how that just kind of is bizarre for another reveal in vertigo um this was a guy that knew his tools so to speak that were in his toolbox and was not afraid to use them but knew how to use them but maybe none more effectively than the camera. Oh, yeah. I, I think the camera was his most effective way. In that, Without that, doubt. That voyeuristic kind of feeling that you get in those movies where you are transported in and where you and, and where you transported 
all over as well, where you go to Monaco, where you are globetrotting with James Stewart and Doris Day in The Man Who Knew Too Much, and and moving around in this international plot of intrigue, which also has them trying to get their son back at the center of it, too. You have such an effective way that that he used the camera and used the shots in it, or where you are camped in front of Cary Grant as he is running right at you with an airplane flying at him from behind. Absolutely iconic filmography uh, filming there to to take a shot like that and use it and the creativity to come up with shots like that where you were transported into what's already a really intriguing story where and the reason quickly a, a sidebar with that too another effective thing was the reason Hitchcock said he always he used the man who was wrongfully accused so often was that he said it was way more relatable for for people he was like why would you get behind a character who had done something wrong? Why, why would you get behind somebody who actually did do the wrong thing? You will get behind the character who is in an uncomfortable situation, not necessarily by their own doing. Even if they put themselves in that position more or less by things that they said or implied, which was Farley Granger in Strangers on a Train, you can still get behind him because it's like, hey, he didn't actually say, I, I want you to murder my wife for me. He, he didn't actually go ahead and say that and give permission to to his his opposite in that movie, Robert Walker, to go do that. He took it upon himself to do that. You have other characters, too, who it's like they're kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time here. And you can get, you can get behind them. Dial M for murder. Is Grace Kelly going to actually get out of this? Is she going to get through this? Like... You can get behind the characters way more easily, and then that makes the film techniques that he uses just that much more effective. Well, yeah, it throws you off balance. I wouldn't describe a lot of the characters in Hitchcock movies, the center characters, as an everyman or an any man, but he can take an any man who's sitting and watching the show and get them behind these people, whether they're wrongfully confused or uh, accused, like Cary uh, Grant in North by Northwest, or somebody who is clearly an accomplice to doing something wrong and not in a wrong. Well, he's mistaken. No, he's actually accomplished, but you can understand his motives, like, say, uh, Anthony Perkins and Norman Bates. You're you're covering up your mom's murders, now multiple murders, and you're trying to throw things off. You, I get why you're doing it, but it is totally wrong. And that is something that Hitchcock was a master of. He will make you feel, this is what movies are well known to do. You're going to see a viewpoint, and you're going to be, to some degree, made to agree with it enough for the sake of the movie to pull forward so that he's got you where he wants you. So that when the camera angles start coming and the other things start coming, you feel a certain way and now you start feeling off-balanced, I think would be the better way to put it, as things continue to evolve and move forward. Maybe that's a better way to put it. He would make you, whether you wanted to or not, take take the viewpoint that he wanted you to take lined up with one of his characters, whether they were right, wrong, or even evil. So it a couple more things are worth bringing up here before before we wrap up. First of all, the end of his career it kind of it, it ended up sort of fading. Like he yeah. he went through this this incredible run of directorial work in the mid fifties to very early sixties. But then after the Birds and Marnie, there was Torn Curtain, which didn't do very well, wasn't super well received. I thought it was okay when I watched it. It was which, okay, which had Paul Newman and had Julie Andrews in it as well, but. 
You never think of Julie Andrews in a Hitchcock movie, Mary Poppins herself. What? There, there she was. Maybe that was why. But then he went he went a very interesting kind of pivot with with his movies of Topaz and Frenzy and Family Plot, his final one. He went he went sort of off the beaten trail a little bit with those movies when he closed out his career and brought it to to sort of an interesting if if not a little more understated kind of end. But it's worth bringing up and you mentioned this to me when we were getting this this episode ready. There was also Alfred Hitchcock Presents, yeah. which was on TV, and that's sort of how he was able to film Psycho, was he used the, the television stuff that was going on with Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and then they were able to make a movie. And that was also a show that carried on even after Hitchcock was gone. There were you know revivals of Alfred Hitchcock Presents even into the 80s, after he was already gone. Um, and the way that he was able to do that, you're absolutely right, but I think... What Hitchcock really turns out to be, in a lot of ways, at least for the the zenith of his, well, what a big word for today, the the very tippy top of his career, what he's best known for, he was the right guy with the right stories and the right time. But as time shifts and attitudes adjust, like always happens over time, he was still doing a version of what he would do, but now the times are changing and they're just not catching on like they were, maybe even just where he was and his life was starting to change. You see things differently when you're young versus when you're older. But I think for Hitchcock, the 50s and 60s in particular, it just really came together at such a perfect time for him that he just was the thing. And then things kind of take apart from there. So by the time you get into the 70s, it just wasn't lining up like it had been before. So really quick before we go, Dave, um, recommended movies that you would give to people who maybe want to go. Uh, let's let's actually let's go with two sets of three here. Three movies that you would recommend for people who maybe want a chill, maybe not necessarily the horror genre, more of the thrills and suspense genre this time of year. And then your favorite three Hitchcock movies. They're going to line up in a lot of ways. Uh, I would Vertigo. I'll say right away is one of my favorites, but it's not one that I would start you on. It's a slow burn. And like I said, even when that movie came out in the late fifties, it didn't register like it does now. It was, eh. and even for me, I thought it was beautiful, but I, eh. but as I've come over the years, I've come to really appreciate it more and more and more. So I like it, but I wouldn't start you on it. If you're going to start and you've not seen the Hitchcock, you got to start with psycho for one. It, the subject matter is dark, but it is very, very good. Um, but I like North by Northwest a lot. It's a great movie. Um, good suspense. It's Cary Grant. It's one of the golden age of Hollywood. But the all-time favorite, I think, it's got to be Rear Window. You got Grace Kelly. You got James Stewart. Um, it's a slow-burning movie, and it's one that anybody can get involved with. Just the way they shot it in this giant, giant set. The entire thing, all these apartments are inside, built inside one studio, uh, or soundstage, rather. What an amazing accomplishment. It was huge. Um, it, it, was, it was amazing the way that they made it. It's amazing what winds up on screen, the way that the story slowly builds and slowly builds and slowly builds. I would call it a thriller from the get-go, but you don't know it's a thriller. Uh, but things are going on, and you're kind of aware of something, but you don't know what, and then it starts to take form, and then it starts to take crisis form, and it's just a slow build into a dynamic conclusion. That is a good one. That was the first Hitchcock movie I ever saw, and I loved it immediately, and I think you would too. All right, I would say for for three that I would give recommendations for for thrillers that will give you kind of the suspense slash creepy factor for this month, I would say Shadow of a Doubt, go with that one, Strangers on a Train, 
And I would also that well, if we're gonna say if we're gonna remove Psycho because it's a given, I would oh, say it's not three. A gimme. It's not well, a given. I would I would almost call it a given. So I would say th- if you're looking for three outside of Psycho, go with go with Shadow of a Doubt, Strangers on a Train. And go with Dial M for murder because All good I choices. because I would say I mean I would say um, <laughs> Psycho is kind of a given in there. My my top three, my favorites. It's hard to pick just three from, yeah. from Hitchcock's. I would say in in no particular order. Actually, I'll, I'll go by year. Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest with. The birds just missing out. I love the birds. I I think it is so creepy. And yeah. actually, I would uh, let me let me backtrack. If you want to go the thriller route, you I'll, should be able to see. I'll who, replace. You can see his gears. Tra- no, yeah. no, wait, wait, wait. I'll replace Dial M for murder, and I'd say watch the birds. If you want to, if you want a creepy horror movie this time of year, watch the birds. There are some there are some scary, creepy images in there, and the feeling at the end of the movie is chilling. You know, and so I would I would replace the birds in there. I want to quick too give some love to the Trouble with Harry, yep. which is so beautifully shot, and it's, it's a actually comedy a one. comedy. I love to catch a thief. It's just a fun movie that just misses out on on my top three, and I do. I want to mention, too, Notorious from 1946, which is a really good one with Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, and Claude Rains, and a good a, a good intrigue movie. That's a good one. And another one for the, the thriller slash trying to figure out one, Suspicion from 1941 with Cary Grant in it, and it, all, it also has Joan Fontaine. Another really good one for the, uh, for the thriller slash intrigue factor i love who's going to give you his top three and then let me tell you the 10 that tied for fourth <laughs> exactly that's how th- you got to check out the full slate of them there's no, so you're right you're you right can go down a hitchcock rabbit hole very easily you know and as much as there's connective themes through most of these a lot of them are really interesting and in they're so different you know the trouble with harry you think is going to have something in common with no not really it's really kind of on its own there's yeah. a body alone in the woods what do we do i don't know it's kind of a comedy and how everybody walks across it, and they just, how do you handle it differently? It's bizarre, but funny. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, ju- located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. We've given you plenty to look into. If you've, if you've heard the name Alfred Hitchcock, if you've heard about his movies before, we've probably given you a lot to unpack and to check out. Now, I own quite a few of his movies. They just, yeah, they, they still hit. They still are really fun to watch today, or really suspenseful to watch today too and even if they're dated technology the way they're shot whatever it's kind of a fun visit into a period of time that might be before your period of time that's almost foreign to you which almost in a way kind of adds to the intrigue a little bit i don't remember a rotary phone i don't know if i could dial a rotary phone if i was trapped in a room with a rotary phone it's interesting to see how that goes by all means don't let their age or their black and white if that's the case trip you out keep you away from them because you're just chipping yourself Yeah, they're great movies to check out. So we leave you to it. Until next time, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.